Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest this week is Adam Davidson, a staff writer at The New Yorker. Prior to joining the magazine, he co-hosted NPR's Planet Money, which he also helped found. At The New Yorker, Davidson has been focusing on President Trump's tangled business empire, which may now be in the crosshairs of federal law enforcement. To discuss all this, as well as the investigation into the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, whose home and office were raided last week or two weeks ago, maybe, as well as the Russia investigation, I thought it would be fun to talk to Davidson, who joins me now from New York City. Adam, how are you? I'm great. Hey, Isaac. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thrilled to. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a piece uh, several days ago. And it's called The End Stages of the Trump Presidency. And um, I'll just read uh, our audience something from the piece for people who haven't read it. You mentioned the Iraq War and the financial crisis, both of which you covered. And you write, quote, I thought of these earlier experiences this week as I began to feel a familiar clarity about what will unfold next in the Trump presidency. There are lots of details and surprises to come, but the endgame of this presidency seems as clear now as those of Iraq and the financial crisis did months before they unfolded. And then you say we are now in the end stages of the Trump presidency. What is it that's gone on in the last few weeks or months that's made you think this? So, um, first of all, for for a year and a half now, I'm one of several reporters who've been um, studying intently um, Donald Trump's businesses, his relationships with people around the world, um, not just Russia, but but other people as well. And and I think as a rule, the this group of reporters uh, finds it increasingly shocking um, just how flagrant the Trump organization was in dealing with some of the shadiest, I mean, frankly, in cases, purely evil people, people who made their money in wildly illegal and corrupt ways. People have been convicted of crimes um, ranging and, and or have been under serious investigation, uh, you know, ranging from money laundering for Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps to, um, you know, drug dealing to all sorts of financial crimes. And it's been a concern that this, you know, I do think most Americans, including Trump's hardcore supporters, have a general sense that this is a guy who isn't going to be a stickler for the rules and is probably done some sort of technically illegal things or shady things. But I don't think the full, both lawless and also kind of pathetic and lame nature of the Trump business. I don't think that has entered the national narrative in the way I think it it should. Before the FBI raided, uh, the Department of Justice announced that they were going to be seriously investigating Michael Cohen or had been seriously investigating Michael Cohen. It seemed at least possible that Mueller's investigation would end sort of in a draw that he clearly would be able to show because he already has that there was collusion between some parts of the Trump world and and some parts of the Kremlin. But I, I could imagine a situation where he says, well, we really couldn't nail Donald Trump himself. There's no evidence that he himself directed or participated in this and that Trump's supporters and Fox News would declare a victory and we'd enter a new phase of the Trump presidency, one in which, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there would be a chaos, chaos fairly soon because the president's good at, at fomenting chaos. But at least for some period of time, there'd be a sort of post-crisis phase. And once we got 
to Michael Cohen and 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 the raid and information that they've been monitoring his email and presumably his phone traffic for months. Um, that told me that there is no post-crisis phase of the Trump presidency. That we now have two investigations, and this new one, the one that involves. Cohen is going to get a lot closer to the core of who Trump is. And that much like earlier cases, like the Iraq war, like, like the financial crisis, um, I think it takes a long time for national narratives to shift and change, but they do eventually shift and change. And I think this one will shift to a very different understanding of who this Donald Trump guy is. Right. I mean, I guess that that raises the political question or, or to me, in a way, the, the sort of disturbing political question of if you're correct that the national narrative is going to shift in some way, which, you know, could take the form of Trump's approval rating dropping from like 40 percent to 28 percent or, um, you know, a large chunk or a, a significant chunk of the Republican Party turning on him, um, the sort of chunk of the party that never viewed him that favorably, uh, according to polls before the election, say, but sort of reluctantly voted for him, something like that. I, I think that that's, that's plausible. I think the sort of tougher question is how that manifests itself politically with the, with the financial crisis. The financial crisis happened and Republicans were kicked out of office and that was very clear. But in terms of ending the Trump presidency, it would sort of require a political act like impeachment and removal from office. And it, it's hard to see, even if a national narrative shifted, exactly how we would get that, at least from the sort of politics of today. Yeah, and it's certainly an uphill battle. And, and you know, if, if you wanted to make a smart bet, the bet would be he's not removed from office. But I have been in this situation before, you know, on, on um, the day that George W. Bush landed on the aircraft carrier with mission accomplished, um, support for the Iraq war and for George W. Bush was 70%. Um, I remember I, I was in Iraq for most of the first year of the U.S. occupation, but I, I came home um, on a little bit of a break in, in June of 2003, so a few months after the invasion. And I remember finding it just bizarre how even my sort of New York kind of lefty friends just didn't believe me that the situation in Iraq was a disaster and found my warnings absurd. I mean, even in 2004, my friend Farnaz Fasihi at the Wall Street Journal got in a lot of trouble for writing a fairly factual email about how disastrous the situation in Iraq was. And so I think that, you know, the political problem is is a public opinion problem. And so I think, I guess that's the prediction I'm making is that public opinion will change enough that it will fundamentally alter the political dynamics. Now, there will, of course, be districts that are firm Trump districts, and, and those congresspeople or even senators are not going to be able to shift. And getting to two-thirds of the Senate, which is needed for removal from office, that's a high, high bar. And I, you know, it would take a lot. But I think that a thorough accounting of, of the people Trump did business with, what the business was, and especially if we do find, and, you know, I, I'm suspecting, um, but I can't say for sure that, you know, Michael Cohen will have recordings or emails that show that the Trump organization knew they were basically helping fairly evil people um, continue their crimes by putting um, 
the Trump brand on their projects so as to make them less suspicious, I I think we're going to find it very hard for an awful lot of Republicans to support. Um, that's a prediction. Predictions are hard, especially about the future, as they say. And um, and I certainly, you know, would not say I know I'm right. Of course, I don't know that I'm right. Um, well, but I, I, I would just the one thing I would say I want to move on to the business empire. But I was just going to say, I mean, you, you mentioned the thing with the rock and telling people how bad it is and people didn't believe you. Uh, one sort of interesting flip here is I find at least talking to a lot of people on the left, a lot of liberals, um, which you see online and conversations that I have with family and friends. The sense is actually that Trump is going to be impeached and that this can't last four years. And of course, at some point, the Republicans are going to turn on him. To me, it's a problem in the other direction of there's no way this can keep going on and on and on when, in fact, the most likely scenario is it's going to keep going on and on and on. And so that sort of mindset among people on the left, I do think, is an interesting kind of inversion of what you were talking about earlier. Although that was true with Iraq as well. I mean, the left... You know, it was was very hostile to the war. Obviously, we had big yes, marches against it, and and um, I don't know that it's that different. I mean, I have to think about that. Um, but it also, I mean, <laughs> I would say the left was right in in, in the Iraq War. Um, you know, there is a naked a nakedness to his corruption and illegality, where he's not really trying to hide it. You know, it's 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 sort of a, a source of of pride. So it's not that we'll reveal that he's corrupt or, you know, criminal or bends the rules, but I think the specifics are troubling. And I think the more you, you engage the specifics right, and you step away from sort of this vague, like, you know, a bunch of snowflakes hating the guy, I think the story changes. Now, yes, I don't think we can just rest assured. Yes, don't worry. He'll definitely be impeached. The political system will... We'll, we'll get him impeached. And, and frankly, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying all this as a reporter, not as a, you know, left winger or whatever. But yes, I recognize that what I'm saying is bold or, or not bold. And, and just what everyone's been saying all along, I recognize that. Um, I, I still, I still think that the specifics of Trump's business practices are more troubling than people have taken in. So let me ask you about those business practices. Um, let me just start this way. Do you think Donald Trump is a good businessman as a businessman setting aside ethics? No, definitely not. Why? Um, well, I think, you know, in in many, many ways. So so first, I mean, one kind of general, like just test of success and success, by the way, is not necessarily a sign of of being a good business person because a lot of business is taking risks, et cetera. But, you know, as, as several people showed, I think Slate, um, Jordan Weissman or someone at Slate did this, he has in sort of financial terms, either lost money or, or certainly barely made money over the course of his career. So if, if you start with control of like $200 million and um, of your father's money and one alternative is you just invest that kind of safely in 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 stock in the stock market. Um, and the other alternative is you do whatever business you do. He has lost compared to that sort of benchmark, um, at least for much of the time frame that that he's been in business. So that is just a sign of okay, he you know he's a rich man, but but it's different to start as a rich man and end up as sort of roughly exactly as rich. Um, that that's less impressive to real business people. 
the other thing is, um, especially in the real estate industry, you want to see someone amassing wealth that over time their um, their holdings, their their empire is is bigger, not smaller, and that they're able to take. Um, maybe they're they're not going to be taking as wild the a, a risk as as they were when they were younger because they've been able to amass a kind of sustainable wealth a, a, a bundle of assets that that are really worth something and we certainly see that there's certainly plenty of people in new york real estate say who over the course of trump's career have done exactly that he hasn't i mean if you you know he's he's this brash guy doing you know, big, loud projects in, in the 1970s. And he's a brash guy doing less big, less loud projects in the 2000s. And by, you know, 2010, he's basically a failed real estate guy who then starts a new career as, you know, basically a, a pitch man putting his name on projects um, that other people are going to make you know, have the potential to make tens of millions and he's going to make, you know, single digit millions. So given where, where he comes from, given the industry he's in, given the, the places that he's been along that journey, you know, he's richer than I am. And, you know, I know his, his followers seem to, to see that as really relevant. Um, but, but if you look at his peers, if you look at any sensible benchmark, this is not a guy who's really impressing a lot of people. He's- well, ju- just, to, just to ask you about that, which is that during the campaign, there were a lot of stories about Trump not being a particularly good businessman, his failed ventures, his bankruptcies, and so on. And when I would talk to Trump supporters or go to meetups or something like that, one of the things that I heard several times was essentially, how can he not be a good businessman? He's one of the most famous people on earth with a universally recognized brand, and he lives in one of the most famous buildings in the world, and everyone knows what him and his wife look like. This was all before he ran for president. And there is a sense in which he succeeded before he even ran for president, regardless of how many bankruptcies he had or you know, how he's compared to other real estate developers. He made himself into a universally recognized brand. And it seems to me that even most of us who were given $200 million of our father's money could not do that. And so I'm wondering what you think that is and how you think that fits or doesn't fit with what you say is his not very good business sense. You know, over the course of Donald Trump's life, um, branding has become much more central to how American businesses strategize, how they measure their success, et cetera. I mean, it, you know, to say the obvious thing that everyone points to, you know, Coca-Cola's sugar water that, you know, has the Coca-Cola brand on it. But even, you know, Boeing and others are, are very aware of the brand as a central part of their value. And we've learned a lot about how to manage brand. I mean, brands are a new thing. You know, they're sort of commonly understood to have started probably with ivory soap, maybe 130 years ago, 1879, I think, and and developed and 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 have developed into one of the central tools of American business. You know, I, I think there's been a dramatic sea change over the course of the 70s and 80s in how we manage brands, how we think about brands. And his brand is in in a... I mean, if if the test is simply have people heard of it, then, you know, I guess a lot of people have heard of him. But if the test is, has he been able to monetize that brand? Has he been able to turn that into real brand value and sustaining brand value? And 
growing brand value so that each year the brand itself is worth more. That is not the case. I mean, there are, I think, 14 Trump hotels in the world, and and that's a fairly stable number. Um, when you look at the projects that he's been doing over the last decade, you know, there's a there was an attempt at a Trump Baku, Azerbaijan, an attempt at a Trump Mumbai, an attempt at a um, Trump Uruguay. We don't have, um, you know, it's nothing like the incredible expansion of Four Seasons or Ritz Carlton, where you, you know, first of all, you have Trump, you have, you have hotels in, in London and Paris and, um, you know, all, all the best cities in the world. And also you have partnerships with the leading business people. And you have brands that each year are appreciating in value. Um, Trump is sort of selling his name for these, you know, 1 million here, 5 million there kind of contracts to pretty much anyone who will reach out and, and, and can pay the money. So it's from a branding standpoint, it, it's a pretty pathetic business. And, and we saw that in the kind of just throwing his name on anything, even no matter how, peripheral or lousy the product is. So, I mean, I think one of the many things we can learn from Trump's support is that I think a lot of people conflate fame with success and, um, and sort of trappings of wealth with, with, with actual wealth. Um, you don't have to go to, you know, say Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos to find more successful business people. I'd say, even if you just look at his immediate peers, um, He's just a non-entity who who makes a lot of noise. Do you have a sense from looking at his business dealings the last year and year or so how his kids are doing running the business and if they do it any differently than he does? It seems to be a pretty much moribund business. I mean, it's it's um they have some commercial properties that they're able to um you know that generate some income and and they have the ongoing hotel deals. Um where they, you know, they own a few hotels and then they manage hotels for other people. So they do have some income coming in. They have less in those businesses because, you know, famously, uh, several properties like Trump Soho, Trump Panama have removed their name um, and removed them from, from any involvement. And all of his properties, as I understand it, are suffering from very low occupancy, including the Trump DC. His golf courses have never really made much money. Um, and you know, it's famously a, a really tough, tough business. So their goal before he became president, their big goal for the year or for the, the sort of 2017, 2018 was to launch this new three and four star kind of, you know, roadside motel business, the American idea is the three star and American sign is the four star. And that's just been a total disaster. I mean, they, they, you know, we're promising hundreds and hundreds of properties and they have three in Cleveland, Mississippi area in the Delta, um, with one company that, that they've only signed one company and it doesn't seem like they're really actively selling it. So it's, I think it's a pretty rough time for the family business right now. Now it seems like they have enough kind of revenue coming in that I don't think that it's an existential crisis that they might go bankrupt any day, but they're certainly not expanding in any impressive way. So let me ask you then to turn to Michael Cohen and his role in this Trump business empire. I mean, I think most people think of Michael Cohen essentially as Trump's fixer who pays off women who Trump has uh, slept with or 
you know, God knows what. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the role he plays. Do you have a do you have a sense of the larger role Michael Cohen may play in Trump business dealings or what he means to the Trump empire? Yeah, I mean, his main job was not as a lawyer of any kind. His main job was as a uh, dealmaker, as a guy who would travel the country and the world looking for possible projects, looking for partners who might want to get the Trump name on their hotel or um, buildings that, you know, office buildings that might want to have a Trump name on them. And um, it, within the Trump organization, that was a, a very clearly distinct role, the the dealmaker versus the lawyer role. And that was his primary role. And so the, the reason I think he's so significant is um, there's this period of very rapid expansion into these overseas licensing deals. It's sort of remarkable, like in from between 2006 and then really speeding up 2010, 11, 12 into 2016, they're just going all over the world. And it, and by they, I mean three people, Don Jr., Ivanka and Michael Cohen, and they are do, signing deals with really, you know, sort of famously corrupt people and famously corrupt parts of the world doing, you know, virtually no due diligence that we can tell or that they can claim and, um, and taking some, some enormous legal risks all the while saying, well, we didn't know they were bad. We didn't know the details, et cetera, et cetera. So he will have the email traffic that will tell us what exactly, um, is happening, you know, what, what exactly did they know about these partners? Um, how aware were they of these partners illegality or how careful were they to not know? Because in a, American law being deliberately, it's called willful blindness. So if I do business with you and you know, you constantly show up with all the telltale signs of a notorious criminal and I don't and I never ask you and I ask everyone not to tell me that's, that's deliberate ignorance. That's willful blindness. And that's essentially legally the same as, as actually knowing. So I think that we will get a much richer sense of what the Trump organization knew, what, um, about the illegality, um, of their partners. And we'll know to what extent did the Trump organization understand that it was, essentially playing a role in a criminal operation that, you know, at, at least what seems to be the case is that the Trump organization was, um, the role it played at least in, in a lot of these deals was that there was someone doing something shady, um, often laundering money through real estate, which is very common. And by putting the Trump name, it gave them a little bit of cover that, you know, Zia Mamadov, who's, you know, one of the most corrupt people in Azerbaijan, one of the most corrupt countries on earth. If it's a Zia Mamadov project, maybe it gets a lot of scrutiny when he starts sending money around the world for tile or for architecture services or whatever it might be. But if it's a Trump property, maybe that gives it a little bit of cover, makes it seem like it's more of a legitimate project. 
We know the role Michael Cohen played in possibly trying to get a Trump Tower built in Moscow um, several years ago. And I'm wondering, you've been looking at the Russia story and at the Trump business story. And earlier you referred to kind of journalists who are on the beat of the Trump business story. To what degree do you think that these are going to eventually – you've been talking about this kind of expanding consciousness we're going to have about where this is all going. To, to what degree eventually do you think the Trump business story and the Russia story are going to meld and become the same story? Well, I think the bigger story is the Trump business story and the Russia stuff is a subset of that. You know, look, Donald Trump is somebody who's been trying to – you know, score big through business, you know, since the 1970s or 1960s. Um, he's a guy who's been trying to make it politically for a couple of years. So um, I'm pretty sympathetic to the argument that this really was not a presidential run. This was an effort to burnish his brand, to sell more properties around the world, and specifically to get a Trump Tower Moscow. I think that was a major, major goal for Donald Trump for reasons that still don't quite make a lot of sense. And so I think we are going to find that that the Trump-Russia story and the Trump business story really are one and the same, although the Trump business story is bigger because it involves problematic oligarchs in um, Indonesia, in Uruguay, in, you know, in, in many, many, uh, India, crucially, um, in many parts of the world that, that have nothing to do with Russia. And and I think that that's the key lesson of this um, Cohen investigation that that we're we're not stopping with Russia. We're going to keep, you know, the Justice Department. I strongly believe is going to have to keep looking, keep studying, keep learning about um, this global operation. Let me ask you though. You you said that you thought it was weird that he was so interested in uh, Trump Tower Moscow. Why, why was that weird or why is that not clear why he would want that? I mean, I can understand why he would want it. Why he seemed obsessed with it is, is a little confusing. I mean, there's been some good reporting that his deal in Georgia that Michael Cohen managed was an attempt, part of an attempt to create what they were calling a ring of Trump properties around Moscow. So Michael Cohen, you know, brought the Georgia deal, but sort of promised Donald Trump that that would be the first of many in the former Soviet Union. Michael Cohen went to Kazakhstan to meet with, to try and foster interest in a, in a Trump Tower Kazakhstan. And, you know, he, he, he was exploring things with Ukraine and, and other parts of the former Soviet Union. So it's, I mean, I, I can understand why he might want it. I don't, I don't understand why it's such an obsession compared to say, I don't know, you know, China or, India. I mean, he does also have a lot of business in India. And, and I mean, frankly, he's been much, much more successful in India than in Russia by far. So why, why he just remained obsessed with like, why can't I get Russia? Why can't I get Russia? Um, that, you know, I, in, in my mind, I'd double down on India if I'm going to do this kind of business or double down on the Arab Gulf or something like that. You know, when the Paul Manafort charges broke and it became clear how much illegal activity he was engaged in separately from his work on the Trump campaign, it was it was pretty striking that a guy like this could go around and commit this many crimes, this many financial crimes overseas and still kind of be a lobbyist and work in Washington. And, you know, you've been writing about the Trump business empire and the way they interact overseas and 
the ethical lapses that have have gone on there. Have you been sort of shocked as we've sort of lifted up the rock of white-collar crime to see how much is underneath it? That's a bad metaphor. But but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. Yeah. No, it's been really upsetting. Really upsetting. I think one of the key lessons of all of this is just how little we prosecute white-collar crime in general, and particularly international white-collar crime. You know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is the law that outlaws Americans bribing foreign officials. And there's a couple dozen cases a year. Most of those are self-reports, meaning, you know, some big American company says, oh, one of our low-down affiliates did this bad thing. We're turning that person in so that we don't have any corporate responsibility and we'll pay a fine. Money laundering is is very rarely, you know, the <laughs> the greatest analysis of money laundering is that it's something like 10% of the economy. I mean, it, it, it's widely understood to be a central pillar of the real estate business in New York and LA and Miami. And it's very rare for money laundering to be prosecuted. Um, even terror financing, even sanctions violations, um, we do remarkably little. And, and that is very upsetting. I, I think that it is a reminder of our two-tiered legal system. I mean, almost by definition, people doing large financial crime are people with large amounts of money. And um, they are able to operate with some degree of impunity. Um, now, I will say, even in that, Trump is an outlier. That um, the Trump Organization took risks, did work with partners that very few Americans would ever consider working with. And so I don't want to give the impact impression that he's just run of the mill. He's just like everybody else. Cause that's something I hear a lot. And that always drives me crazy. It makes me, you know, he's not, he's, you know, he, and, and, and that's not because necessarily all business people are moral. It's because they're, you know, business people are supposed to be good at balancing risk and return. And, and it's, a bad risk to, you know, take the Mamadoffs that he did this deal in Azerbaijan with. As far as we can tell, Trump made five million or so from that deal. If he had done his due diligence and if he had learned, as he would have, that they were likely to be money laundering partners of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, he faced a life-changing amount of fines and potential criminal liability. And, you know, if you're a billionaire, as he claims, then you shouldn't do that for $5 million. It's a, it's a, it's an absurd risk to take. It makes no sense at all. And we see him taking such risks again and again and again. So he, he really is an outlier. He's not, he's not like everybody, but the norm is pretty, you know, I think when this is all over, I'll quit journalism and just go into international money laundering. It seems like yeah, it pays better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you didn't even get paid for coming on this podcast. Adam, uh, thank you so much. When Trump is uh, in his uh, second term, uh, gliding along with 70% approval, we'll uh, we'll have you on and uh, ask what went wrong. But uh, in the meantime... Sounds great. Well, I, did, I said it's the end stage of his presidency. I didn't tell you that the end stage is seven years long. Yeah, no, it's, it's a long end stage. Uh, dog years. Yeah. Adam Davidson, you can read his work at newyorker.com or subscribe to The New Yorker in print, which uh, is a worthwhile thing to do. And uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Isaac. That was really fun. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. 
you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. We got a ton of feedback about our interview with Barbara Ehrenreich via email and Twitter. A lot of people uh, seemed to like it. A lot of people didn't seem to like it. So uh, keep the feedback coming and keep the feedback coming on the pronunciation of names that I apparently do very poorly. We got a lot of criticism on that front. So thank you again for listening.